of people have asked with what's going on in the Middle East at the moment. Is this something that is prophesied in the Bible? Is this signs that we are coming towards the end? And I think what has happened, um, and especially within the church, uh, once we have a misunderstanding of who Israel is and what Israel is, then we have a misunderstanding of what is going to happen during what we know as the end times. And God has given us a timetable. Um, He didn't just give seven feasts to Israel in order to fulfill um, some time during the year. He gave these feasts to Israel to not only celebrate certain aspects of their relationship with him and to commemorate certain things that happened in their history, but he's given Israel these feasts to outline his plan for the ages. Everything is a picture. Um, Paul tells us that, that we have a, a picture of things that happened in the Old Testament that point to the Lord Jesus Christ. The offerings are a picture of Christ. Then there's death upon the cross. The tabernacle is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Certain characters from the Old Testament are a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see in these seven feasts of Israel is literally God's timetable for the world. The feasts, as we know, are split into two parts. We have the spring feasts, which were Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits. And then 50 days later, we had the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. They were the spring feasts. Those four feasts were fulfilled at Christ's first coming. Then we have a gap between the spring and the autumn, and then we have the autumn feasts. We are living in the gap right now. Between Christ fulfilling the spring feast that is first come in, we are in that gap between spring and autumn, and that's the day and age in which we live right now. At Christ's second come in, he will fulfill the autumn feasts, and that is trumpets, the day of atonement, and the feast of tabernacles. Last week, we looked at the feast of trumpets, and again, If people have a misunderstanding of who Israel is, then they will misunderstand what God has planned for the end of the ages. Because what people see, and this is where the Feast of Trumpets must represent the rapture. Remember, the feasts have everything to do with Israel and nothing to do with the church. The rapture is for the church. Uh, the dead in Christ will, at the trump of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. The Feast of Trumpets has got nothing to do with the rapture of the church. It has everything to do with the regathering of Israel and their recommitment to the Lord to, to recognize his covenant relationship with them and for the sacrifices to begin again. And we saw that through through Solomon's uh, celebration of the feast, and we saw that through Ezra and Nehemiah's celebration of the feast. Israel is gathered together, they renew their covenantal commitment to the Lord, and they begin their sacrifice. At the end of the tribulation, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns with his saints from heaven for that final battle of Armageddon, will then regather his nation, Israel. And there they will renew that covenant relationship with him. Blessed is he 
that cometh in the name of the Lord. They will look on him whom they've pierced and then as a nation will accept their Messiah. So that was the Feast of Trumpets that we looked at last week. And if you remember, there are groupings. And I said last week, when, when, did, when do they have to go up um, for the feast? At what feast do they have to go up and celebrate? And, you know, I, I kind of always got, was it Passover or unleavened bread they had to go for? Um, but if you just remember, they've got to go up for all of them, then that covers every base. Because they are grouped in threes. And they're close together. So Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits all happen within the space um, of uh, a few days together. So if you say, well, they had to go up for the first set of feasts, then you're going to be okay. Then they had to go up for week, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. And then um, they had to go back to Jerusalem. And again, because um, the feasts are all gathered together in a short period of time, they had to go up for... Um, they're going to be there for trumpets, day of atonement, and for uh, tabernacles as well. So what we're looking at today, we are looking at the day of atonement. And uh, it's interesting that this is not uh, referred to as a feast. It's not the feast, you know, we've got the feast of Passover and the, um, the feast of unleavened bread and the, you know, the feast of first fruits and the feast of weeks and the feast of trumpets and the feast of tabernacles. But this is not referred to as a feast. Um, in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 26, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also, on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And ye shall do no service, and ye shall do, do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. He shall do no man of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest. And he shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even, from even unto even he shall celebrate your Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day, for this opportunity to gather together around your word, Lord. And we might come to um, this um, particular feast on your account, Lord, as we come to this day of atonement, and we might ask ourselves the question, well, what does this have to do with us as the church? If this was something that Israel was to remember, then how does it apply to us? And Lord, we're going to see exactly why you instituted this, what the Lord Jesus Christ will do in order to fulfill this, and what it means to us as a church. So Father, I pray you would speak to our hearts tonight and help us to recognize that we serve a perfect God, a God of order, uh, who has all things in control, uh, knows the beginning from the end, and is working things out in accordance with his perfect timetable. So, Father, we just pray now that you would speak to our hearts tonight, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So, as with everything we've looked at so far uh, with the Day of Atonement, we're going to look at what God has done, what Christ would do, and what we should be doing. So, what has God done in regards to this feast, this Day of Atonement? And maybe you've picked out um, a few recurring words here in this passage and maybe the thing that's caught your attention more than anything is the word afflicted we see that word appear quite often afflicted 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 
And it says that this feast on, uh, in verse 32 of chapter 23 was to happen at sunset. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even. As sunset begins, uh, this is where it starts. And this was a very solemn time. Um, this wasn't a day which brought joy. This wasn't a day that brought happiness. This wasn't a day even to celebrate. It is a day that people considered their sins before the Lord. This is a day when the Jewish people were to afflict their souls. They entered into a total fast for 25 hours. They ate and drank nothing. They were totally focused on their nation's sin. We are told that this is a Sabbath of rest. In the Hebrew language, this is a very intensive term, and it literally reads Shabbat Shabbaton, a Sabbath of Sabbaths. This term describes a Sabbath that is only um, uh, used in two books of our Bible. It is used in the book of Exodus, and it is used here in Leviticus, and it applies to three significant events. If you now, I'm not putting a lot of these scriptures. I'm not putting up on the wall because I think we need to kind of follow along in the, the scriptures. So if you turn to Exodus chapter 31, Exodus chapter 31, the first thing we see uh, in use of this particular word is the weekly Sabbath. The weekly Sabbath. It says in verse 15, six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord, whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Verse 17 says, it is a sign between me and not the church, but the children of Israel forever. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. This Sabbath day is a sign for Israel. Um, it is a sign for Judaism. It brings a message from God to Israel, reminding that there is coming a day when she shall cease from her labors and will finally enjoy God's covenant blessing. Um, can, I, can I just burst people's bubble who still refer to Sunday as a Sabbath? Sunday is not the Sabbath. Um, Saturday is a Sabbath. Uh, the Sunday is the, what we can call the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week. That's when they gathered, the first day of the week. And that's why we've continued to gather on a Sunday. It's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a Saturday. Um, and it literally um, meant uh, the end of. You know, we are under no obligation to uh, remember the Sabbath. Uh, we're not under that law. If you go to Israel um, and you happen to be there, I, we've done a few trips to Israel, and um, I will never, I, sorry, Lynn, I will never forget the first time I went to Israel, Lynn um, needed to use a particular room. Um, I don't have to say this without saying she needed the toilet. I, she needed the toilet. And it was Friday night, and it was about, four o'clock and we were on the bus and we could not find anywhere that was open in order for us to um to be able to to get it wasn't just lynn who, who it was a couple of us on the bus that needed it um 
and he couldn't find anywhere open. So in the end, we had to wait till we got to the hotel, and I don't think Lynn made it, if I remember rightly. It was a bit of a mess on the back of the bus, if I remember rightly, Lynn. <laughs> oh, I don't know why anybody comes to this church, I don't. I'm amazed Lynn has lasted so long. <laughs> um, but I just highlighting the fact that we, we did, we were desperately searching for somewhere. Um, but all the, everything was shut. Even today, they like, at a certain time on a Friday, even before six o'clock, everything just shuts down in Israel. If you went into the hotel on a Saturday and you got in the wrong lift, if you got in the Shabbat lift, you were stopping on every single floor because there's a lift there because you're not meant to operate machinery. So they have a Shabbat lift, which will literally go to every floor of the hotel so you don't have to push the button. You know, we're not under the law and we're, we're not confined to the fact that the Sabbath is not for us. The Sabbath is a sign between God and Israel. So here um, it, we see uh, a fact that Israel had an, a specific obligation to keep the Sabbath day. Um, we also saw then in uh, Leviticus 23 the word used in regards to the day of atonement. But that word, uh, Shabbat Shabbaton, is also used in Leviticus 25 when it talks about the year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25 and verse 4 says, But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest, Shabbat Shabbaton, unto uh, the land. A Sabbath for the Lord, thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. In the seventh year. You know what's really interesting? Uh, a, couple of, uh, a couple of years ago, um, I went to speak in um, Johanna's uh, church, uh, church that Johanna's dad uh, was pastoring. And I stayed with a family, and he was a dairy farmer. Um, and at that particular time, he told me that next year, um, he was doing something to all the fields where the cows grazed because it was the seventh year. And I was like, mm. so why, why do you do that then? He said, because if we don't, he said, the cows have taken all the goodness out of the ground and if we just keep allowing them to, you know, to keep grazing, he said, the, la- the, the, the soil will be absolutely destroyed. Um, I, don't, I, don't know, I, I didn't ever get around to asking him if that was something they did because they learned it in farming school or if he did that because he was a Christian. But every seven years, he rotated the field so one field was kind of rested every seven years. And so I think the Lord knows kind of what he's talking about and what he's doing here. So the year of Jubilee was the seventh year where the land was meant to have rest. Um, just as a side note, the reason that Israel was taken into captivity for 70 years was because for 490 years, they never gave the land the rest that it needed. So the Lord said, you owe me 70 years, and I'm going to get the 70 years one way or another The word Shabbat is literally rooted in a word that means to come to an end, to sever or to complete. So the seventh day, the Sabbath, completes the end of the week. Um, Everybody lays down their tools and they cease to work. The seventh year, the year of Jubilee, completes the production cycle of the land and allows the soil a period of rest 
before the sowing begins again. So if the seventh day uh, Sabbath signals the completion of the weekly cycle, and the seventh year Sabbath, the Jubilee year, signals the completion of the land's productivity, then it stands to reason that the Day of Atonement, a Sabbath of rest, a, a, a Shabbat Shabbathon, also signifies a completion of something, or the end of something. Uh, verse 27 of Leviticus 23 says, Also in the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation uh, unto you, and he shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. This day of atonement. The Hebrew phrase is Yom Kippurim, uh, the day of atonement, plural. This is important because oftentimes we think of the word atonement and we obviously come straight to the shedding of Christ's blood and the covering of our sins. But there is more to atonement than just covering sins. The atonement doesn't just cover, but it actually cleanses. If you turn to Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16, this is where... Uh, the focus of, of Moses goes into a lot more detail in regards to this feast. And in verse 29, he says, And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, he shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, um, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth with you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments, and he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation, and for the altar. And he shall make an atonement for the priests, and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. So it's not only the people that are cleansed. It's the tabernacle and the items in the tabernacle. It's the high priests and the priests and all the people and their garments. They were So it wasn't just people that were to be atoned for. It was also things that were meant to be atoned for. Um, so if atonement only speaks of a covering of sin, we know the altar in the tabernacle hasn't sinned. Um, they're inanimate. But they can be cleansed. And that's what um, they, they needed to do. They had to be cleansed. Um, our definition of atonement has to include cleansing. And that includes anything then used for the purpose of serving uh, the Lord. Without cleansing, not only a person, but also an object was deemed unsuitable and unusable for the Lord. God demonstrated this cleansing process when he met Moses on Mount Horeb. Um, God's presence made the mountain holy. And he said to Moses, draw not hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Isaiah understood this principle uh, about spiritual cleanliness when he saw God 
He recognized how dirty he was. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And then a coal is taken from off the altar, and uh, he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. God's action demonstrates that he can make the unclean clean. David recognized the need for a personal cleansing when he said, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Do good. It, it, it was only after that that he could do good in thy good pleasure and desire and build out the walls of Jerusalem. For anything animate or inanimate, to stand in God's presence, it has to be clean. All of this serves to remind us of God's absolute holiness. We serve a holy God. For God to manifest himself upon the earth, for God to come to the holy of holies, there has to be a cleansing in order for it to be suitable for the Lord to be there. What most people miss is this. God's holiness is at the extremity of the pole that parts him from man's sinfulness. God is so holy, sin cannot be in his presence. You know, that's why people say, oh yeah, well, you know, when I, when I get to heaven, then, you know, I'll be able to go before the Lord and say, hey, look, I was a good person. If there's even the smallest, tiniest amount of sin that has not been dealt with by Christ at Calvary, then you will not stand in God's presence. James says, if you just break the smallest part of the law, you may as well have broken every single commandment ever given by God because it won't matter. God is so holy. That's why it drives me to distraction. Do you know one of the things I despise more than anything? And if you do it, stop. I hate it when people call God, Daddy God. That drives me nuts. I don't know if you've ever heard that or seen that. I'm like, I get that he's our father. I get that we have that, that precious relationship with him to be able to say, Abba, Father. But it makes my toes curl and people say, oh, Daddy God. He's holy. You know, we don't, even though we can come boldly before his presence, we don't come flippantly. He is a holy God. And to, just to give you an idea of his holiness, the consequence of Adam and Eve's one sin banished them completely from the Garden of Eden. He was so holy for the sake of one sin. He barred Moses completely from the promised land, even though Moses had done everything else that God had asked him to do. That's how holy God is. For one sin... He struck Gehazi down with leprosy. So holy is God that just one sin in touching the ark, uh, he killed Uzzah on the spot. So holy, if for one sin that David committed, he struck 70,000 men down. So holy that when Ananias and Sapphira deceived the church, that one little sin, they both lost their lives. That's how holy God is. The feasts are not about individuals. The feasts of Israel are about Israel. 
which raises the issue then, if the Day of Atonement is about cleansing, what about Israel's cleansing? And that brings us to what Christ would do. Again, we're going to look at a number of scriptures, and you see they're not on the board because I, I, I kind of want people to, to, to get there. So look at Psalm 102. Psalm 102 and verse 13. Psalm 102 verse 13, it says, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. If you look at Psalm 130 and verses 7 to 8, says, let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. If we look at Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 17, Isaiah 45 and verse 17 says, but Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. He shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. Verse 25 says, In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Um, Isaiah 46 verse 13 says, I bring, my, I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off and my salvation shall not tarry. I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. And then finally, Jeremiah 23 and verse 6. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherein he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Jehovah said, can he? So do you get the idea? Israel as a nation, whether the world likes it or not, Israel as a nation, whether it's the popular opinion today or not, Israel as a nation will one day be cleansed and will be saved. You might say, well, this all happened when, when Christ came. Israel as a nation didn't accept the Lord Jesus Christ. They were quite happy for him to go to the cross. Yeah, but the early church, they were all, they were all Jewish believers. The early church was kind of persecuted by those still in Jerusalem. Paul was one of the biggest persecutors of the early church, and the church became made up more of Gentiles than it did of, um, of Jews. And so Israel yet, right at this moment, as a nation has not been redeemed, has not been cleansed, has not been saved as a nation. But at the end of the tribulation, the Lord Jesus Christ will come back to Jerusalem the exact same way he left in Acts 111. Uh, the angel said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Christ will physically return back to the earth. The rapture is not the second coming. At the rapture, the Lord meets his church in the air. At Christ's second coming, he regathers Israel on 
the earth. Christ will physically return and then begin the earthly 1,000-year reign known as the millennium. So with God's physical presence on the earth, remember, sin has to be cleansed. Um, Israel has to be atoned as a nation. Once cleansed as a nation, then they would be free to enter the millennium. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel, and I know this is probably more of a Bible study than it is uh, for a Sunday night, but we are coming to an application for us as a church um, as we bring this uh, to a close now in a few moments. But uh, Ezekiel 36 and verse 25 He says this, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit uh, will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, surely uh, at the end of the tribulation, with 144,000 witnesses, uh, and if, if Israel gets saved, why then do they need this cleansing? Surely when they get saved, that's why dispensationalism is important. Because God deals differently with people during the tribulation than he does deal with people now at this moment. So after this regathering of Israel, after the fact that they gather together and they are cleansed, then will God put his spirit within them and cause them to walk in his statutes. And then ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. The day of atonement is a day when the whole nation is redeemed and reconciled unto God and is cleansed for his use throughout the kingdom. Remember, we are cleansed because of what Christ did upon the cross. Um, But after the cross, Israel will need to be cleansed um, by this day of atonement. So in this day, when Christ appears to the Jewish people, um, and and again, this is what Zechariah tells us in Zechariah 12, 9 to 11, they will find forgiveness and cleansing from sin, not as individuals, but as a nation. So that's what Christ will do. So what does it have to do with us? What does this have to do with us as a church? What should we be doing as a result? First of all, it tells us that we have to approach God on his terms. Um, All the detail we've been given about the Day of Atonement tells us one thing. It is God and God alone who determines how we should come. We live in a day now where we are constantly told that there are many ways to God. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this analogy that every religion in the world worships the same God. God is on the top of this mountain and all the other religions in the world are just kind of around the mountain. They, they can't all see what everybody else is kind of seeing, but the paths of each of those leads to the same God. It's not what the Bible says. You can't say that because that's kind of been detrimental to to people of other faith. It's just what the Bible says. 
we have to come to God, God's way. God determines how we come. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No man comes to God but by me. There is no other way. Moses and Aaron didn't sit down and come up with a plan by which their sins and the sins of the people could be atoned for and then presented to God for his approval. God said to Moses, this is how I'm approached. At this particular moment in time, this is how the nation is to come to me. This is how their sins are to be dealt with. And this is how you are to have access to my presence. When God gave Moses and Aaron the instructions about how to atone for their sins, I'm sure it didn't make sense to them. And can I say this to you? Christ dying on the cross of Calvary does not make sense to me. I don't understand why he would do it. He's God. He could do whatever he wanted to do. Why did he have to go to the cross? Nobody else could pay that price. If there was another way, I can promise you this, God would have known all about it. But that was the only way to atone for sin. That was the only way not to cleanse the nation for another year, but the Lord Jesus Christ was the only way to deal with sin once and for all. God's plan of salvation doesn't make sense to us. But you know what? He doesn't ask us to make sense of it. He just simply says, if you want to come to the Father, then you have to come by me. There is no other way. Even those um, who are saved, those still trying to preach, approach God in their own way. And in their own terms, you know, we come before God in our times of prayer and we say, right, God, this is what you need to do in my life. This is what you need to do. This is not fair that all of these difficulties have come. You need to put them right. And guess what? God doesn't need to do anything else for us. But sometimes we approach him in that demanding way. I loved what we said this morning with Hezekiah. He simply came before the Lord, spread out the letter and said, I don't know what to do, Lord. This is, this is just help. You know, we don't need to bring our, our own thoughts and our own plans and our own ideas and say, look, Lord, have you, have you considered this? God's omniscient, I'm sure he's considered everything. Sometimes we just need to come before him and say, Lord, just help me get through this. I'm not asking you to fix it or take it away. Just give me the strength to put one foot in front of the other. The day of atonement reminds us that we have to approach God on his terms. Not only that, the day of atonement reminds us that repentance does not end at salvation. You know, we say, well, in order to be saved, there needs to be repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. And once you repent, that's it. Repentance doesn't end at salvation. Repentance is not just something that takes place the moment we are saved. You know, one picture we use to describe repentance is that of a U-turn, uh, usually in connection with our sin. Not to be sorry that we've been caught in sin, but to be so distraught by what that sin is, is that we've done a 180 
and we've turned from it. And that's one way to, des- to describe repentance. In the Old Testament, the primary Hebrew word for repent, when it dealt with man's repentance, is a word that means to turn back or to return. It's always in the context of returning back to God. You know, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are many times when we wander away from the Lord and repent. My people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and repent. Turn from their wicked ways. Turn back to God. Repentance doesn't end at salvation. The primary focus of the 10-day period from trumpets to Yom Kippur is also to repent and turn back to God. The Greek word used for repentance means to change one's mind. And that kind of has a broader meaning. You know, when we repent, we change our mind on what sin is. As, a, as an unbeliever, we don't see anything wrong in maybe using bad language or, you know, watching certain things or going certain places or doing certain things. But when you repent, you change your mind. And you recognize that, yeah, that is wrong. In this process, Paul described in Romans 12 too, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. True repentance means that I change my mind and I view everything from God's perspective, not my perspective. It's about time we stop telling God what to do and we ask God, Lord, what do you want me to do? What should we be doing? What does the Day of Atonement teach us as believers that we must approach God on his terms, that repentance doesn't end at salvation, and that practice makes perfect? Too many Christians give up at the first hurdle. Too many people give up the moment their prayers are not answered. Listen. God is going to keep working on us until the day we get to glory, until the day that we receive that glorified body. Um, Practice makes perfect. Repentance is an ongoing process. When Paul commanded us not to be conformed to the, the, the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, he uses the present tense. This is a continuous process. And that has a double significance for us, because it's not an option it is a command it's a more significant aspect of our application because it's in the present tense it is something that we should continually be doing we could say do not keep being conformed to this world but constantly keep being transformed by the renewal of your mind this process of changing our mind and making it god-focused is not a one-time event. How do we do that in practical terms? How do we approach God on his terms? We just come his way. You know, oftentimes we come to that verse where it says, and we come boldly before the throne of grace. And that doesn't mean we come boastfully before the throne of grace. It doesn't mean that we come, uh, you know, with a, a list of demands because God has to answer our prayers simply means that we have the access to come before him. But we still need to remember 
how we are to approach a holy God. How do we approach God? We approach him on his terms. What does that require? It requires repentance. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we can come before him because that's his terms. How do we do that? By practice. And we do it continually. We saturate our life with the word of God. And as we draw closer to him and he draws closer to us, we recognize the character of God and that we have to approach him reverently. That is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. It doesn't mean that we're scared of God, even though I'm sure if we were to see him face to face, as it were, we wouldn't survive, because that's what the Bible says. But we are to have a reverential respect for the Lord. And we need to be careful with the terms that we use. If you do use the term Daddy God, please stop. God is a consuming fire. I'm thankful that we have a relationship with him as a father, but we are to approach him in the right way. Father, we just ask for you a blessing upon everything which has been said and done this evening, Lord. And Father, we pray that you to help us when it comes to our walk with thee. Lord, we recognize that we have a privilege to be able to come before the throne of grace. But Father, help us to not come irreverently. Help us, Lord, to not barge into your presence. Lord, help us to come on your terms as we repent, as we come before you, Lord, realizing that what Christ has done in our lives, his shed blood has cleansed us from our sin and that his righteousness is added to us. But Father, there are still moments in our lives where we fail you and we mess and we sin and we need to confess that sin so that we're able to approach you, that that relationship, even though it is affected by our sin, it's never destroyed, but that fellowship is affected. So Father, would you help us to approach you as you deserve? And Lord, as we come before you and ask for your will to be done in our lives, may we see something different this week. Help us, Lord, to recognize the incredible God that we serve. I'm thankful that we serve a God of order. And Lord, I pray that everything that we do would be in accordance with your will and would be pleasing unto thee. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing our last hymn together. I'm going to ask Brother Andrew if he would come up then and close us in a word of prayer. Amen.
those words, our God is a consuming fire, and we think of the words that come before it, whereby we receive in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace, that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We pray, Father, that you help us ever to remember that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that on that, his great day of atonement at Calvary, suffered for our sin. And may we hate, uh, maybe as your children, hate the sin who have sent our Savior to the cross and resolve day by day to honor you with everything that we do. We pray, Father, in our thought, word, and deed, we shall glorify the Savior who has saved us that we be, might become more like him. And we pray, Father, that day by day, we shall reflect that beauty of the Savior to others so that we might be a saver of life to those who believe, or as someone has said, magnets drawing people to the Savior. We thank you, Father, for Pastor. We remember Joe and pray that you'll grant her in your will healing and recovery of strength. We commit Liz and the family into your hands and pray that they will know you as the great shepherd who art with them in the valley of the shadow of death and for others who need you, and especially those who need salvation and may be seeking the Savior. We pray that what they've heard tonight shall bring them to the foot of the cross. We ask these things in our Savior's name and for his great glory. Thank you.